Hey co-conspirators, my name is Mackenzie. And this is Fatina. And you are listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. Welcome back. Did I sound sexual? Yeah. <laughs> hey. Hey. My number is. <laughs> Did you? Oh no, you wouldn't have listened to that. What? Back in Arizona, like the late night radio shows. Oh, I totally <laughs> listened to those. Are you kidding me? We used to have those here too. I know you're going to put all of this into one. Uh, so I am going to be leading this one today. Lucky you guys. Lucky Fatina. Everybody who gets to listen to my voice. I'm excited. You said this is a special one. This is a special one. Near and dear to my heart because it is brought to you by my mother. A.K.A. Vicky. Vicky! Vicky! My mom goes by mom in my life to everyone except Fatina and her wife Kara. And myself, when I'm talking to them, we all call her Vicky. Because Why, how did that start? It just fits her so much better based on like the context of the stories I'm telling about her. It's Vicky. It's always Vicky. When I'm telling stories about her, they usually involve her being sassy. Oh, that's so Vicky. Yeah. So I don't know <laughs> if I can call her anything else around you guys except for Vicky. Um, but this is a Vicky episode. Hi, Mom. <laughs> But we're doing this one because I feel like everybody has their like first true crime story that kind of sucks them into the world. I actually don't remember what mine is. Do you know what yours was? You know, I was thinking about that the other day and one of the first ones, the one that I keep going back to, I was like, I don't think there's anything before that, was seeing the tabloids about John Bonet. That was the first one that I was like, what happened? Yeah. And... Close second, OJ. Because OJ, okay. Definitely saw the Bronco on live TV getting chased. That's hilarious. Albeit a slow chase, but definitely those two. See, and I don't remember what mine is. I feel like, I feel like my mom gave me like a copy of the Diary of Anne Frank, and then I started oh. like researching everything about the Holocaust. And then I started researching everything about Alcatraz. And then I started looking into the mobsters and the people that were in prison there. And it was just like this domino effect. <laughs> like one wasn't terrible enough. I just needed to keep finding out all the rest of the yeah. stuff. So, Alcatraz is a good one though. Yeah. That one. We'll do an episode on that at some point. Eventually. But basically it all starts with Vicky. Even though I don't really remember what my first one was, she remembered what her first one was. Today's episode will be my mom's first introduction with true crime. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I'm I like excited. this one. So I'm going to tell you about hers today. My mom was nine years old herself, living in Iowa when this happened. And so was the victim. The victim was 10 living in Iowa when this happened. Mm. This is the story of Pamela Powers, uh, who went missing from the YMCA in Des Moines, Iowa on Christmas Eve, December 24th in 1968. Okay, so terrible things happen, but when they happen around the holidays, that breaks my heart. I know. And that's going to play a big role in this story. Oh, okay. But she was 10, my mom was 9 at the time, and was living in the same area, so both were living in Iowa, and my mom says she remembers, like, grabbing the newspaper each morning. This doesn't go on for very long, but the trial kind of drags out, so she remembers grabbing the newspaper every morning because she was keeping up with the story. So Pamela Powers was 10 when she went to the YMCA with her family that afternoon for a wrestling tournament that her older brother was competing in. So they just come into the building and she 
made a trip to the bathroom and then never returned. So the family kind of was asking around if anyone had seen her and very quickly realized that she was missing and chaos kind of ensued from there. Oh my God. Okay. Several eyewitnesses reported seeing Robert Anthony Williams leaving the building with a bundle of blankets underneath his arm. He was living at the YMCA. So it was kind of like a hostel type situation. Um, they had a dining service, they had some residential space and people could rent out rooms um, for a small cost and kind of stay there. Everybody used the same entrance into the YMCA, but it was kind of like a separate annex off the building that served as like some type of embassy inns, if you will. Sure. Well, that's what, sorry, that the song like YMCA, it'll, it says it oh, will take yeah. you in and get Come to stay at the YMCA? Your, yeah, wow, I never even face. realized. <laughs> that's where it's from. Here I was just thinking it was a place for kids. Okay. So he had paid for a single room. He'd reportedly been staying there since October. Um, during that time, he'd really managed to creep out the staff. Uh, they just found him very odd. His behavior was kind of strange. One of the women that worked there said that she was always kind of relieved that her door was locked behind her whenever he was around. Like, she would go somewhere else and lock the door. So just the creepy... Yeah. Like, she found him looking through a window at her one time. Just very strange. Sorry, did you say how old he was? He was 24 at the time. Oh, so not old at all. Not very old at all. So he had been staying there since October... And the staff saw him actually leaving the building, like I said, with the bundle of blankets under his arm, as well as several eyewitnesses. The staff thought he was skipping out on his rent. He was about a week behind on rent because he was paying for it by the week. Um, and he'd fallen behind on his payments. So they thought that he was taking off. So the desk clerk called out to him and asked him what he was carrying. And he said something about a mannequin and then went out the door. This, yeah, the staff tried to follow him and stop him, but he jumped in his car, locked the doors, took off. They weren't able to reach him in time. There was a eyewitness, a 13-year-old, who said that they saw a pair of skinny white legs sticking out from the blanket. <gasps> no. The employees who weren't able to catch him in time called the police and they gave the car information and the license plate information and his description and information um, as far as what he looked like. The Associated Press wired over a photo and the staff positively ID'd him. They said that after this one, they changed the laws so that people that stayed at the YMCA had to use different entrances and exits than the people that were going there for events. Oh, for the sporting stuff. And I should and say that. the law, but they changed the policy. Sure, yeah. the policies. Like I said, he was only 24 at this time, and they learned that he'd been arrested in 1965 for raping two girls in Kansas City, Missouri. One of the victims was only seven. Wow. At that time, he was actually committed to a mental institution these crimes so he never actually went to prison or jail for the crimes of rape yeah he escaped in july of 1968 so that same year in the summer by just walking off the premises he literally just walked away from it sorry <laughs> i wish i could just see the faces that i give you when you're telling me these things because it's so unbelievable and i and i give a lot of you forget to react out loud yes. <laughs> but i'm giving you the what yeah he literally just walked off. And that's when he made his way to Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, and there he was working as a clerk for an insurance company. And he was also an assistant pastor at a Baptist church. Wow. Yeah. Like a traveling minister. Yeah, and people said that he was, like, really mild-mannered, very polite, quiet, or whatever, that they didn't really think that he was the violent type. But then, like, the employees at the YMCA said, like, he was super creepy. 
So kind of back and forth as far as the right. the perception that people had about him. Right, different um, areas. It seemed like a different thing. Like a church being quiet and whatnot, right. just being reserved is one thing. But in the normal world, when you're quiet and you stare at people, that is creepy. Yes, super okay. creepy. <laughs> on Christmas Day, so the very next day, a janitor at one of the rest stops on the highway had found a bundle of bloodstained clothing, including the pants and socks that Pamela had been wearing the day that she went missing. Oh, no. Williams actually surrendered himself on December 26. He called his lawyer, Henry McKnight, for legal advice. He'd found out that the police were interviewing people in the area that he was and knew that they were closing in on him pretty quickly. So he called the attorney and the attorney advised him to just go ahead and turn himself in. So he did on December 26, two days later. The detectives picked him up in Davenport, which is about 150 miles away from Des Moines. And his attorney told the police at that time not to interview him without his lawyer present and told Williams not to answer any questions without him present. So just do the ride home, be quiet, shut up and don't say anything. But that's not what happened. Oh. So one of the detectives began referring to Williams as Reverend. Oh. And started kind of chit-chatting with him about religion and different things. Making him comfortable. Yep, totally. Playing, yeah. up, playing up the good cop card. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to be relatable. Build a rapport. Right. As the conversation progressed, the detective mentioned that snow was coming in and it was probably going to bury Pamela's body, which would result in people getting hurt trying to recover her. And they probably wouldn't be able to recover her if she was buried in the snow. Because we're talking about the Midwest here where they get feet. Feet. Yeah. So he said that this could be prevented if Williams just told them where she was. And he urged Williams to give the family a proper Christian burial for the girl who was snatched away from them on Christmas Eve and murdered. Quote. Good for the cop to play that card, though. Right. That's really But that smart. comes back into play here. So he tells Williams, you know, don't answer me. Just think on it. Decide what you want to do. Several miles down the road, Williams decides that he wants to go ahead and take them to the body. So he leaves Sorry, to... he's still in the car at this point? Yeah, they're still driving. They have oh. 150 miles to go. Oh. Okay. So... He leads them to the body, which is about 10 miles east of Des Moines, where he'd left the body. Um, she was basically in a ditch, half naked, frozen. She'd been sexually assaulted and smothered. Oh, poor baby. Yeah. Um, he was charged with first-degree murder, and he went to trial on April 30th of 1969. His attorneys claimed that the detective violated Williams' rights by questioning him without an attorney present. But the testimony from the detective was allowed, and Williams was convicted to life without parole. His attorneys filed an appeal based on the Christian burial comments and said that it was a violation of his rights in questioning him. The attorney had told the police not to question him, blah, blah, blah. The appeal actually made its way all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. This case is responsible for a lot of laws that we have in place now as far as... When they're able to interview or ask questions. Yeah, or the rights of a suspect, basically. Sure. So they overturned the conviction on the basis that he was unfairly convicted based on the questioning without an attorney present. So a new trial started on July 8th of 1977, and he was found guilty again. I know, you guys are all getting Rodney Alcalifines right now. Yeah. How many times? <laughs> Just tell me how many. <laughs> 
So he was found guilty again. It went back to the Supreme Court again. This time it was based on entering the body into evidence. His attorneys argued that the body was only found based on the confession. And if the confession wasn't admissible in court, then neither should the evidence that occurred from it. Are you joking me? However, this time the Supreme Court ruled the evidence could be admitted if there was a likelihood the evidence would be discovered in another lawful manner. Basically, the searchers that had all gathered at this point to try and find her were getting close to the location of her body anyway, and she was going to be found regardless. Because it was visible and out. Okay. Right. And they were canvassing and blanketing areas. They were moving in that direction. Body would have been found regardless. So they permitted that part of the testimony be entered in or that evidence be entered in, and the conviction was upheld. He continued to fight his conviction for about 15 years. I also read an article that he was part of the Iowa Penitentiary Riots. Um, like, leading the riots in the prison. Um, He ultimately died on December 20th of 2017, five days before Christmas. Interesting. Yeah. Um, And died of natural causes at the Iowa State Penitentiary. He was 73 years old at the time. And this is something that I asked you, I asked you in the last one as well, but did he ever talk about the why? Not that I ever saw. Oh, man. I know. And I'm dealing, of course, with this because it wasn't so high profile. It was high profile to Iowa, but it's it's not high profile nationally. So I'm pulling old newspaper articles that are out of date. And so he might have said something. I don't know. Yeah, that's the story of Robert Anthony Williams. That's my mom's first interaction with true crime. She, to this day, remembers the little girl's name off the top of her head. That was me snapping. Um, (laughs) Yeah. If you ask her about it, she'll be like, yep, Pamela Powers. Like, she remembers it right off the top. she knows all about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, this... Luckily, they recovered her body very quickly. Yeah. And, I mean, luckily, the police officer was smart enough to know how to play the situation and have it recovered, but I can't even imagine doing Christmas as that family now moving forward. Right. Like she went dis- she disappeared on Christmas Eve and was found December 26th and was missing on Christmas. Right. The brother said something about how like her Christmas presents were all oh. wrapped and everything under the tree. She had new stuff ready to go. That's heartbreaking. And she, yeah, the family never was able to give it to her and I just I can't even imagine just ugh. That's interesting. Yep. But it's interesting to hear, you know, the cases that stick in your mind and what gets people... What gets people started. Right. Yeah. Into true crime. So thanks, Vicki. Thanks for sharing thanks, that. Mom. That one's for you. That is it for this one. We're just doing a really small... Just to hold you guys over for the next big just one. A, just a little Just a little teaser. appetizer, if you a will. appetizer. So if you guys have suggestions or anything that you want to see, you know the drill. You can find us on Instagram at a stranger danger podcast. Email us at a stranger danger podcast at gmail.com. And the Facebook, I always kick it over to Patina. <laughs> That's Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. Stay safe and beware of strangers who escape mental asylums. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode. Bye-bye now. Bye.